Welcome to the Deep Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead creator of Deep Into Movies. We are a pop-up cinema screening important contemporary cinema and overlooked gems across London. Up front, I need to thank Joshua Eustace of Telephone Tel Aviv and Second Woman. He made our incredible music. Our engineer is Ewan Henselwood. Both dear friends and ridiculously talented people. So, thank you both. For our first podcast, I spoke to the comedian, writer, and filmmaker Stuart Lee. Stuart joined me to talk about his new documentary, King Rocker, which he made with director Michael Cumming. It investigates how Prefects and Nightingale's frontman Robert Lloyd has survived under the radar for more than four decades. Robert is a great punk outsider. We love this documentary. Some of it was shot at the beloved Moth Club in Hackney, where I started screenings five years ago. It's a story of making art, getting kicked around, feeling like you want to give up and keep on going. It's available to watch for free on Sky Arts, Now TV and On Demand. Here's our conversation. Let's get into it. Um, how did the film come about? I know you knew Robert anyway, but he pitched you to make a film about his life. Well, I think he asked Phil Jupiter's first and he wouldn't do it. <laughs> and um, to be fair, about 10 years ago, we were in the Yorkshire Grey, which is a nice pub in um, uh, Fitzrovia, north of Oxford Street, where George Orwell used to drink. And where I was once on a bill, and there's a 50-seater room upstairs, and I was on a bill that was me. Peter Kay, Rob Newman, uh, Stephen Merchant, and Ricky Gervais was in the audience. <laughs> and, um, it was sort of two pounds, you know. It's really funny to think of that. Anyway, uh, so um, and he, anyway, Rob said, uh, do you think that you, you could make a, a film, a documentary about the Nightingales, like the Anvil film, a sort of comedy film? And I thought about it. I thought, well, you, you probably could, but you'd want it to not to give a make a better case for them than that makes for Anvil really because they're a different sort of group and also no one will fund it obviously you know I can't get I can't get things that I think are commercial ideas done so no one will pay for it it's a bit like Jerry Springer the opera it's kind of thing people just think well that's insane and then when it's a hit everyone goes of course it would have been all along you know but this has been like that no one would have done it um after a few years uh, of asking around, I did get to the point where the head of comedy on Radio 4 said I could do a sort of half-hour radio documentary about it. And I just thought, you know, it's not worth it, really. Because um, it would take so much work. You might as well do it like what you want. But I, I just didn't know how to start, really, doing it myself. And then about three years ago, I was talking to Michael Cumming, a director who I knew anyway, because he'd done the pilot of Comedy Vehicle. Uh, and then he went off to do Toast instead, because um, that came in. But um, 
it, it turned out he was a massive Nightingales fan. Um, and I said, well, do you want to make a film about them? <laughs> and he went, all right. <laughs> and um, we knew we'd have to do it ourselves. We would make it and see what happened. But I'd just been helping out in a little bit on a film about Shirley Collins, the folk singer, which Fire Records in the end produced. And um, I liked the bloke from there, uh, James, and uh, I went to talk to him about it, and he said, well, he'd help. But the, obviously there was no budget, so we did all the research and everything and got ourselves to places. We did um, a bit of crowdfunding. That's all the names at the end. And we did three gigs, me and Michael, where he showed his um, documentary about Brassai that he worked on, and I did work in progress. We did them at Earth in uh, Dalston, about a 700-seater. And uh, we used the money from that to pay a crew for about 12 days, 10 days, crew of about three people, sound, you know, and two cameras. Um, Michael did all the editing in his shed, which he had never done before. We finished it in about uh, February last year, just before lockdown. And the idea was we were going to tour it around cinemas and do little talks and stuff. And then that went down. And luckily, everyone we approached to try and sell it to as broadcasters wasn't interested. But Sky Arts were. And, um, you know, we're not quite in profit yet, but we've beaten up a lot of our debt. And, um, uh I mean, we made it for less than someone gets paid for appearing on Taskmaster, you know, in perspective. Um, and uh, it's been a big hit, and people seem... Like it got, you know, 200,000 on Sky Arts, which is uh, more than a lot of BBC4 shows get, you know. Uh, so it's brilliant. And um, it's obviously going to have a further life. And I know it's been really good for the Nightingales, which at the end of the day was what it was all about. They've gone from getting sort of 500 streams a week to 8,000, um, which means they'll earn 10p from that. But in terms of people coming to shows and stuff, I think it'll make a big difference to them. It's good to have a record of them. I mean, a document of them. Um, the film, because there was only two of us really involved in it and no executives, the film was what we wanted it to be. That's why it's quirky and fun in a way that television documentaries normally aren't. Neither of us particularly like rockumentaries, so we didn't want to make one. Um, Michael really likes 70s and 80s arena documentaries, particularly Michael Wall, that were quite quirky and fun. And I was thinking of things like Andrew Cotting's films, where he makes a sort of a documentary, but it's not necessarily true, um, and things like that. So it, it just came together really well, and everyone involved with the group and the group themselves were so nice that... Um, I really missed them when we'd finished working on it because I had a off-the-peg extended network of friends for a couple of months. Um, that was a long answer, but um, I've been thinking about it all month, mm -hmm. you know, so what's your next question? <laughs> I, I was going to say, I love music documentaries, especially on outsiders, underdogs, and misfits. They always yeah. seem to make the best subject, but I had in my notes just from we screen movies all the time and anytime I'm talking to documentary filmmakers like the I know Jeff who made the Devil and Daniel Johnston documentary right I haven't seen that you haven't seen that no that, that no. seems very you I noticed you've got the t-shirt no I this is Tortoise 
Oh yeah, it is. It looks like that baby one. Yeah. You know, when he's yeah, yeah. And the Being Frank documentary. I, I, yeah, I haven't seen that either. Although weirdly, <laughs> I was involved in the fundraising for no for the statue. I was involved in the fundraising for the statue. Yeah. Well, I've seen lots of them, but I haven't seen those. The Jandek documentary. I haven't seen that. Although I've, I've just I've just received a signed Jandek um, CD via a strange course of events. But he signs it as Corewood Industries. He won't sign his name, which I think is fantastic. But no, I've not seen that one. All these documentaries that I mentioned when I've spoken to the directors, they're all just labors of love. They've always yeah. taken five to ten years to make. As you mentioned, no funding. Yeah. Clearing licenses. Different well, the licenses labels. is the worst part. I mean, that was the majority of the budget was clearing things, and the, there was, I mean, there was one thing we had to spend a lot on because you couldn't really tell the story of them without showing some footage of the hit of Rocking with Rita, the video has become an asset of some big company. It was just impossible. And the uh, Rasmataz footage was four times more expensive than anything else, you know, but um, but it is really good. You know, it, it really tells a story. In a way, we were lucky because there isn't very much footage of the Nightingales. I mean, there's, there's, maybe, there's maybe four bits of footage of the band playing, uh, of which we use three. There's, um, there's, two bits of footage of the three bits of footage of Rob Solo of which we used two and there's one that I'd love to have seen that's just missing um and then all the stuff from since they've reformed we've had access to that because they've done everything themselves but yeah the archive was um really difficult yeah it's all owned by Getty now Getty is sort of buying everything and um so it was it was difficult but it was it was easier in a way because no one was thinking, oh, I hope my favourite bit of Nightingale's footage is on it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I really liked your approach to the film. You're almost deconstructing the music documentary. Like there's the scene where over a curry where you say to Robert, can you just talk about this, but say it as if you haven't been prompted to yeah. do so. Well, I mean, I had I always had half an eye on that as Michael was filming it um, on ways to sort of explode the machine of it. It's not a new idea. I mean, you know, you, you can find things from the Middle Ages of people doing that, uh, being postmodern. But um, I don't think it's quite... Well, you, you know more about it than me, but I don't think it's been done in a, a rockumentary. And obviously Michael helped to develop the visual grammar of Brass Eye, which has a very critical relationship with the language of documentaries and, and news coverage and arts coverage. So he was always on the lookout for things like that. And also, Rob has a sense of humour where he'd understand what was being done. And um, it was really nice working with someone who um, could see jokes being set up and would roll with them. Because my last experience of that kind of thing was uh, being on panel shows in the mid-noughties. I did... Uh, have I got news for you? Which wasn't too bad, but he also did Buzzcocks and um, the Jimmy Carr one, which was terrible because you, you you start to try and set something up for the good of the group, and then you're kind of stamped on because everyone's trying to be the person that gets the laugh, you know. And they've normally got stuff they've written with their writers before that they need to land. Um, and uh, it was nice to be in a humour generating situation that was just like being with your friends, where unless you've got really horrible friends, no one's trying to be the, no one's trying to win the room, you know? Yeah. Um, so 
he, he was really good like that. I mean, um, the f- a funny bit is when we're look- looking for the location of Barbarella's and all these documentaries have people standing outside some place, don't they, and going, this used to be whatever. Yeah, CBGB's you repeat the scene then. like three or four times. Yeah, well, it actually, we knew where it was, but Rob was a bit tired and he just didn't really want to walk there. And he said, everywhere looks the same anyway. So we just sort of <laughs> did it over and over again in the same street in different places. But he sort of built it. Everyone was funnier than the last one. It was great. How is it working with Robert? Because he's an unreliable narrator. And uh, well, that was, uh, yeah. Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I was just saying it's quite funny that he's constantly being contradicted from his own yeah. stories. It's like well, a that, kind of... That was- you know, that was obvious on the first day that um, he was telling me on camera things that were different or contradictory to things that he'd previously told me about his life in conversation or that I'd read in books. And uh, so on that first day, I realised that the first day of filming was at Six Music. So that's the bit when we're in the studio with Mark Riley and the bit when we're in the canteen sort of cabin place uh, outside. And... Um, uh, I realised twice in those bits, I said, well, we're going to check this, we can ask them. And then we realised at the end of that day, me and Michael, that there could be a running theme about the unreliability of the story, which is a great thing to introduce into the um, into the idea of the documentary, the idea that you weren't really certain and no one could remember anyway. And then I knew we could find Steve Beresford, who Robert said he had heckled, because I'd just worked with him on this John Cage tour. And um, I knew we could find Frank Skinner, who Rob said was in the band and then said wasn't in the band because obviously I know him from doing the comedy circuit in the 90s so that was just great and that started to become a runner and then of course right at the last minute in what was clearly evolving into being the last scene of the film which I'd had in my mind when I first had the idea of the plot line um, the going to see the King Kong and Michael had covered it really beautifully and uh, got our one drone shot in and um then just in what I thought was the home 30 seconds of what I thought this would be the end of the film, Rob just started going on about having a share with Robin Asquith. And I thought, oh, bollocks. As he was, I was we're going to have to go and find Robin Asquith now. But A, that's really weird. And yeah. B, it won't quite land at this point. But you flew to Malta. To- no, no, we couldn't afford that. No, we, <laughs> um, we couldn't afford that. We, I, we, on the way home from the Penrith, Michael realised he knew someone who knew someone who knew Robin Asquith and I found him on the internet and sent him an email and said, would you, you know, record yourself doing a speech about all the people you've had a shower with? And he went, yeah, fine. (laughs) And um, it helped that he knew me. And I knew he knew me because he'd been doing impressions of me on stage or something, someone told me in his um, talks that he does about his life. And, uh, and it was great what he shot because his friend shot it for him over there. And he shot a load of great um, landscape shots of Malta as well, which dropped really great in. And initially, when it was being edited, I thought, well, if this really breaks the pacing in the, what's clearly the build-up to the climatic line to suddenly go to Robin Asquith in Malta, talking about sharing with loads of people. But actually, the fact that it nearly just messed itself up right at the end as well and that it's him doing it, I really liked that about it. And he's almost like this trump card when you think it's sort of finished and you've had all these weird celebrity cameos and you're obviously, if you know anything about storytelling, you can feel that you're in the end of the home straight. Yeah. And suddenly you go to Malta. And he says, uh, I've swum in a fish tank with Oliver Reed. <laughs> it's so funny. All the things are really great, but what a great bloke. And he was a really good sport about it. And um, again, I'd love to have been able to show a bit of Queen Kong 
the sort of weird ape sex comedy that he did. But um, first of all, he couldn't find out anyone who was prepared to admit that they owned the rights to it. And then um, we just couldn't clear it. But it's an interesting film. But at some point, Robin and I will do a night or maybe a little tour of screening it and talking about it. Uh, because um, it's a really good fun event. Yeah, I think James and Natalia asked me, do I know if I can do some digging as to who owns the film? Oh, really? Yeah. Right. And I think Universal put a cease and desist on the film because of a right. likeness to King Kong. Yeah, they did, yeah. But it's but it is on of it's on a DVD, which I've got. Oh. Which looks quasi official. But I mean, the company is untraceable that put it out. Yeah, we've we've often had situations like that where yeah, we want to yeah. screen things, but we just can't or, or nobody knows who owns the yeah. rights of the companies have dissolved and things like that. Yeah, well it came out about the same time as um the uh Jeff Bridges film, didn't it? Um and of course they had uh high hopes for that. And in fact there's a great film anecdote about it where because Jeff Bridges and uh Jessica whoever it was, they hated doing it and thought it was terrible and it all went wrong and Dona De Laurentiis turned up on set in the last couple of days of filming and said uh, he was really excited about the sequel. And I think Jeff Bridges tore a strip off him. He didn't really want anything to do with it. Were there any contributors you wanted to get who you couldn't get access to? Uh, yeah, Julie Christie. Just um, couldn't find her. She was in France and um, couldn't really communicate with her. She just wanted to, to, to see if she remembered Rob being her postman. Um, the woman from EastEnders who goes, Ricky! Uh, who he said had dirty milk bottles. Patsy Palmer. Patsy Palmer was prepared to do it for some sort of fee, basically. And she was in New York, but she she does sort of, she's a DJ now. And I think she's from that generation. I don't really understand where everything's, you know, I couldn't really figure out what's going on. So that was a shame. Uh, we'd like to talk to Pete Shelley um, from the Buzzcocks because um, we were following a blind alley of a story that Pete Shelley had asked Rob to replace Howard Devoto in the Buzzcocks when Howard Devoto left, and we were we were I even got as far as contacting the Buzzcocks manager with a view towards trying to get the prefects to open for the night for the um, the Nightingales to open for the Buzzcocks at the Royal Albert Hall, and then obviously Pete Shelley died, so that didn't go anywhere. And also, um, it's really good that we didn't get them opening at the Royal Albert Hall because realistically, they never would play the Royal Albert Hall, and. Um, it would have been a sort of fake end to the film, um, whereas a fake triumph, whereas actually the the real triumph is a simpler one. It's that Rob is 61, he's still doing what he wants, he's still writing new material. There's a, um, an audience there, not not a massive one. but um, So he's sort of won a more realistic victory, uh, which is a victory of self-respect and persistence and f- the freedom to do what he wants. And if we contrive this big finish, whether at the Royal Albert Hall, it would have really ruined it because it would have suggested that success is only manageable by the size of audiences or the prestige of the venue. And it would have done the exact opposite of what the show, the film started to be about, which was um, what is a victory? What is a definition of success? What is a, what is the point of a person's life? You know, but yeah, them three, I would have liked to talk to Robert Wyatt. We had a great story about Robert Wyatt, but just Rob, it's not very well really. And couldn't, he was very helpful, but, uh, we couldn't get that. But actually, in a way, it was good because um, what it didn't end up being was lots of celebrity talking heads. And in fact, the celebrities that were in it, most of them 
had never heard of the Nightingales. I <laughs> <laughs> didn't know why they were in the film. Like Nigel Slater. He was fantastic. He had an amazing sense, Nigel Slater, the chef, that he was required to deliver some aggrieved speech. And he really did it really well. What a great sport. Yeah, let's talk about Robert's amazing side careers. Because as he was a food critic, he made music videos, had a record label, almost a TV show. Yeah. And he's a very savvy gambler. Yeah, well, there was, there was more than that. I mean, there was... A, there was they did a pilot of a sort of chat show with Ted Chippington that didn't happen. The sitcom should have happened. The video career, there was an even weirder story about it that, first of all, we couldn't afford to clear the video that it was about because it belongs to Disney, I think. And then also that there was obviously some, Robert had been put in a weird position by some people that looked as if they were using the video for money laundering of some sort and... We had to get all the facts dead right if we were going to talk about that, and we just couldn't. Um, so, you know, those, those, those were good. But in, in, in the middle period between the Nightingale stopping and starting again, he obviously had some pretty big problems. Um, I'm, I'm not a journalist, and if the film's got a fault, it's that um, I should have run those problems down um, and made more of them. Uh, as it is, I just couldn't do that because I'm not, I'm not that sort of person, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't like like those things to be on screen about me. But on the other hand, I had agreed to make this film, so Michael had a really good idea of um, getting Rob to um, talk to Louis, his son, about that period in the pub where he lived when Louis used to visit him after he got divorced, and I think that conversation gives you as much as you need to know and does it much better than I would have done. But again, in that bit, Rob's very aware when I've got him standing outside the Chinese takeaway that he lived at, he's aware that I'm looking for the fourth act. You know, I'm looking for the miserable bit before the, um, the return, you know, before I'm looking for the hero's journey bit where it goes wrong before he, yeah. And he's, he's very great. Even then he was annoyed with me for asking him difficult questions. He was going, Oh, you know what Stuart Lee is like, he's trying to f contrive some, Oh, woe is me bit to make out that I was having a bad time. So he attacks, he sees what I'm trying to do and attacks it. And it's really great that you've got this documentary about someone who said they wanted a documentary to be made. And then when they realised it meant they would have to talk and be interviewed and be followed around, I didn't really like it. And they're trying to sort of sabotage it at the same time as being in it. That's why so many of the interviews are in pubs and Indian restaurants and things, because you had to catch him on the hoof in a place that he was happy to be anyway as if you were just there. But once they became, you couldn't do interviews. And when we when we tried to film interviews in front of audiences, um, when we did little screenings of 20-minute excerpts or whatever, which I thought would be good for the film, Rob just hated it so much, having to talk about himself, that they were unusable, you know. So uh, that's why it is that it is. But then it's nice that it's got the feeling of overheard conversations rather than... Um, staged interviews. There's a really tender scene where you're talking with him on the couch about his career, where he gets quite melancholic about his um, position in the music business, um, being dropped by labels, and he kind of reaches that point, which so many creatives I know, I, I personally have had it, where you just wonder, why the fuck am I bothering? Yeah. Or putting myself through this, 
like no one's forcing me to yeah but then also on the flip side what else are you going to do if you like yeah well i mean you know what um simon munnery's got a joke that all biographies are really about the the writer of the biography and you you impose your own life onto someone else's and i've certainly had that as well about between about 2000 and 2005 and um so yeah i think you, you you look you look for that i mean that that scene again it came out that was so weird like we didn't he we never knew what he was going to tell us next and we were at his house because i wanted to film the garden and his daily pill routine and him cooking his vegetables and everything and then he just started rambling on on the sofa and when i better put the camera on he suddenly remembered that in a box in that room, he'd got an audio cassette of demos for a second solo album. And no one even knew these exist. I never heard anything about it. I go, you've got demos for a second album. He goes, oh yeah, I think so. But he accidentally taped over some of it. And then he put this song on that's in the film, the one that sounds like a Scott Walker song. And we're going, what else have you got? You just never mentioned it, you know. And then he started getting quite m- moody. And uh, that's the only bit really where we've got that. And it was... You can see that it wasn't planned because he's sitting in front of a clothes horse. Did you notice that? <laughs> just I like that touch. A, yeah, that, that grounded it so it well. Just where he was, you know. And um, I looked a particular mess that day. I, you know, I didn't know we were going to be doing that. But um, yeah, that that just came out really well. You know, and a, a journalist with more of a killer instinct would have contrived those things. But on the other hand, you know, it's come out a really happy film, and I think loads of people have really enjoyed it at this time, you know, to see some people being nice to each other and having fun and walking around outside and going in pubs and crowded gigs and things. What was the biggest challenge you faced in making the film? Can you think of one example? Well, um, clearing, we, we were really worried initially that we would never have the money to clear what we would need in terms of um, music and film. There's a lot of the Nightingale's music they don't own. Uh, as it happened, um, it, it became clear really quickly that it was never going to be a film that was going to make the case for the music. Uh, because um, you're starting from nothing. You know, no one knows who they are. You have to remember that. Most, even people that you'd think would know who they are, but like The Fall or, um, you know, uh, the Gang of Four or something that you'd think would have heard of them, haven't. So uh, it, it had to be um, a human story about this guy. And once we realised that, that meant, meant the problems with not being able to clear a lot of the music were much easier. Uh, it was We didn't want to overload it with it anyway. It's there for people to find now if they want, which they are doing. Another problem was that um, we uh, w- w- we didn't quite know if we'd get enough out of Rob. At the start, he, uh, having asked for it to be made, he didn't really seem to want to talk, you know. Um, and But he, I've since read interviews with him where he said he realised about halfway through that he was just going to have to be himself uh, and not try and pretend to be anyone else. And he said that's what... Nick Cave would do, or Mark Smith uh, would try and do a pose of someone. And he said, I, he said, I am an unctuous buffoon and I should come across as one. So he, once he realised, he was all right about it. But actually, um, I, th- I know that Michael, ha- ha- we couldn't have afforded an editor or an edit suite. And Michael did it you know, on his software in his shed. 
and I I know that it was a huge challenge for him initially because um, he'd not edited anything. And when he did edit stuff at film school, it was when it was still analog and you were cutting the film and sticking it together. But um, he really got to grips with that. In terms of man hours on the film, Michael certainly did the most because he spent weeks in that shed editing it while I had thoughts, which were much easier to have. So that probably it. But actually, it's such an interesting bloke, Rob. All the locations were good. I, I thought it would be all right. And I'll tell you when I thought it was going to be good. It was about halfway through when we interviewed Frank Skinner at the Moth Club in Hackney. And Frank said, I'd already thought I wanted to film him on stage with the Nightingale so it looked like what it would have looked like if he'd stayed with them. But Frank said, I suppose all cult figures wish they had mainstream success and everyone with mainstream success wishes they were a cult figure. And when he said that sentence, I thought, oh, you legend, you know, that's great because that's the axis that this film turns on, really. And I was just hoping someone, not me, would say it. And he said it so perfectly. I thought, well, that, that's in the bag. That's fine we'll be able to do this now because the, there's that little axis of an idea for it to turn on. But mainly, mainly it was just really great fun. I know, I mean, me and Michael both liked the group when we were teenagers. Michael sent three pr proposals to the BBC 31 years ago for documentaries. He said he wanted to make a documentary about the Nightingales and Ted Chippington and Jake Thackeray. And he's sort of got to do two of those. They wouldn't have made them 31 years ago and they wouldn't make them now, but he's got to make two of them in one with this. So that was great. Uh, and it was really good fun being around with them. I, I loved going to all the places. I liked eating the grey peas in the um, Great Western pub, Wolverhampton, and going to all these curry places that Rob knows about in Birmingham. And uh, I loved going up on the Stone Circle and being at all the gigs. And I loved meeting all the people, you know, with a and having a reason to meet them that wasn't like you were a pest, like you were a fan pest, you know. And it was really great hearing someone like Tank, uh, who's been in the, the Membranes and the Nightingales and, you know, who's a hired gun for so many people, talking to a guy like that about 40 years in rock and roll as a sort of workhorse and what that's like. So, yeah, it's brilliant. And everyone was so nice to us as well. I mean... We turn up places and tell people what they were doing. Like the landlady at that pub, the Eagle in Borsal Heath, she didn't know anything about who we were, and she was. Everyone was. People were really friendly and helpful everywhere we went. It was great. The film features lots of great British eccentrics like Ted Chippington, Steve Wells, Steve Beresford. Yeah. What draws you to those type of characters? Well, I don't think they, I mean, they're just, they're just the things that I like. And, you know, some people that are like that become popular. Like Harry Hill, for example, people don't really notice. They've sort of forgotten how strange his act is. <laughs> and yet he's a household name. And actually when mums and dads and kids do go to see him live because they've enjoyed his television comedy review programmes, they'll often find themselves watching a grown man splashing about in a paddling pool on stage while throwing bread at the audience and wonder <laughs> why they don't always really like it. So, I mean, it's not, it's not because they're unknown. I like things that are known as well. Um, but, you know, a lot of the good stuff just... And when you see these lists of, like, 
the 50 greatest comedians, if Kitson isn't in it and Simon Munnery isn't in it, you just think, well, what's the point, really? It's about who's been noticed rather than anything else, you know. But they've got good stories to tell as well. I think the fact that Rob hasn't made it in a conventional sense means he's relatable. Um, there seems to be a lot of goodwill towards him as a result of the film. Um, but I don't know. I mean, you've, you said you've seen yourself. You've seen yourself. You've seen me at a lot of the same gigs as sure. you go to. Uh, but, um, you know, when the people... I mean, you're wearing a, t- a tortoise T-shirt. I saw their first British gig, which was at a little pub in, um, in Camden. Uh, and they were on with Smog, uh, and they were supposed to be on with Eleventh Dream Day. Who? That's why I went because they're this Chicago group that I love. But they never turned up because their kid was ill, and um, so I watched Tortoise, and they did that Gamera thing. You know, the things a twelve inch, the first one they yeah. put out, and it's one of the most fantastic things I've ever seen live. And I did, I saw them not knowing who they were. It's in the back of a pub opposite that factory with the black cats outside it. Uh, was it Dublin Castle or Enterprise? No, not not, none of them. Although, but um, you know, it was amazing. And um, but I'm I'd be happy to go and see them at the Roundhouse as well. You know, I'm not. I don't think I'll. It's a shame they're known now. Um, but uh, yeah, just just seems to be. Also, I don't think Rob, Rob isn't trying to write uncommercial songs. In his mind, he's writing hits. <laughs> you know, he's not he's not trying to be di- difficult. He'd really like to be a success, you know. That's just the way they're wired, isn't it? You know? I saw something interesting recently. I watched new documentaries. I watched the Frank Zappa documentary and I watched Julian Temple's documentary on the post. What's that like? Um, I liked it, but I, there's two things that really weirded me out by the film. One, Johnny Depp speaking to Shane in a pub and he's putting on an Irish accent throughout, which is really strange. And I'm really surprised Shane didn't, call him on it yeah well you know what is, uh, some, some of the best actors are like ciphers aren't they um maybe johnny depp doesn't really know who he is and who he is himself and just kind of slips into yeah they say that that a lot of the best actors are quite maybe bland's the wrong word but just quite neutral and can morph into other people yeah yeah de niro seems like that what i found doing this film was i've not lived in the midlands for 33 years you know but um i found my accent would get stronger and stronger the more time i spent there as if i was reverting <laughs> back to, to my actual real self rather than a metropolitan liberal elitist trying to <laughs> have a neutral accent so that you didn't look like a regional comedian but it was great it was great being around with it so the well, and the julian temple one and the other one the frank zappa one yeah i mean that's a long time brewing isn't it who who what's the thrust of that one 
That one is really good. It's the first time it's been approved by the family. Right. There's a big, horrible legal battle going on with Dweezil, who takes his dad's music on tour, playing the music of Zappa. Yeah. And for some reason, his mom's trying to hit him with a cease and desist for right. performing the music. But the thing with the Pogues documentary is every time they'd set up, oh, I went to the studio, I recorded A Rainy Night in Soho or Fairy Tale in New York, they just skip over it. And me watching so many music documentaries, I think I'm a sucker for that classic songwriting moment mm. where you know it's coming where they say, I was in the studio late at night, the band had left, I just took out my guitar and a pen and I... Yeah, well... You know, that's a difficult thing, then, because obviously the, the, both those artists are people that they have known songs and they have songs that um, really connect with people. And when you watch those documents about them, you're thinking, oh, I hope they talk about how they wrote this. Yeah. But with the Nightingales, there isn't that expectation at all. You know, there's not a point where it'd be for a tiny minority of people might be thinking, I wonder how they wrote Start from Scratch or Urban Ospreys or something. But they're not part of the, uh, they're not part of the, tapestry of most people's lives so you know you were, you were kind of relieved of having to do that and i was glad in a way because i was more interested in i mean i love the music and i'm really interested in it but i thought for most people they'd be more interested in a relatable story of some people but i mean the, that, the actual story behind um the composition of uh the, the Christa Pogue's christmas song is so interesting did they did they touch on that at all because jim Viner's no. partner wrote the initial draft of it um, Julian Marcia, Temple yeah. says he swerved or he hates those classic tropes right. and those moments where you're tugging on the heartstrings or slowly fading up for yeah, chorus yeah. as they have the eureka moment. Yeah, He's kind of spent all his life kind of messing with a rockumentary yeah. formula. So he says he just would he did, never... He did a, a documentary... Well, he, he, of the comic strip in its really early days, which is live, which is an extra on the box set of all the comic strip films. I've seen that. That's really good. Uh, it is good, but I, <clears throat> I kind of think it's a shame he didn't just film a normal night because there's so little documentation of that area. And then he, he keeps cutting away to people that have been put in special costumes and it's kind of, that's a different thing. You know, there is, there's no, it's a shame there's not an actual bit of film of what it was really like. Yeah, I'm kind of obsessed with Mr. Jolly Lives Next Door. I need to watch that yeah. once every year. Um, talk to me. How is your what was the dynamic like with Michael working on the film? I'm always interested in Well, it was no trouble duos. at all. Right. It was no trouble at all. Uh I I had it in my head that I would sort of be in it because I was thinking it of it as those sort of documentaries where um a person finds a story as they go along. But I didn't want it to be one of these celebrity things like they have on the BBC where whoever they could get goes on a journey, blah, 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 blah. It wasn't going to be like that. But I tried to write the opening minute as if it felt like it was going to be one of those. And then it really quickly isn't, you know. Um, the, uh, in the first couple of days, uh, I realised we'd never really talked about this, and Michael didn't know, had, was surprised that I sort of thought I was going to be in it because um, he was thinking of it in a slightly different way. But we sort of thrashed that out. And um, uh, 
what, all, all that meant is that we had to make sure we had an extra camera on all the interviews while we decided whether I'd be in it or not, really. Then there was a couple of things that he wanted to do that I didn't understand. Um, like, I didn't really understand what he wanted to do with Gail's doc, which is the piece at the end where Samir Ahmed um, narrates it. Because to me, it felt like it would seem really staged. But actually, that's the beauty of it. And Michael was very into um, the uh, Anthony Wars Arena documentaries, which have quite staged bits in them, which act as commentary on the real, real stuff. And of course, it worked really, really well. I didn't not want to do it, but I just didn't understand what it would be. Likewise, uh, he said he didn't really understand why I wanted to take Rob to the Stone Circle. Um, but when we got there, it was pretty obvious what that was about and how it was going to work. And we were so lucky that it snowed um, as it looked great. So there were a couple of things, but we, the thing is we both know that each other are good at, in our respective fields. So you just try to support the idea rather than block it and then be, be really pleased when it turned out to be a good idea anyway. Uh, so I've never really worked like that with anyone before. Um, so there was absolutely no problem. And then when it, when it got to the edit, Michael was doing all the hard work of trying to assemble it kind of chronologically and thematically, but I had a, I'd always had this story idea in my head. And so we would just sort of swap notes about how to, he could get what he wanted out of it and I could get the sort of drive of the story out of it. And um, there were never even really any compromises. There was simply, we'd talk about it until we realized what was the right thing to do, even if it wasn't what you thought it was originally. Partly why it was so easy was because there was no executive producer. No one was paying for it. So normally you're fighting a three-way battle against a person whose interest is financial or commercial. You know, they want you to do certain things because they think that means it will sell or play well. But we didn't have that. We only had ourselves. So it was really great. And the tragic thing is that, you know, we will go back to working for people again. We're working... For people, I mean, I, I, I'm probably not as dependent on it as Michael because obviously I am a live performer principally. But normally, if you want to make something on film, you have to answer to the person who's paying the piper, you know. And um, it would be very hard to ever do that again, having been able to make what you wanted without interference. And all we got from our producer James was um, support and. Um, practical advice and I think it's because at fire he's used to managing the sort of 20-year careers of these people like Bardo Pond or the Bevis Frond or the Chills that they just carry on <laughs> you know yeah he's not looking for like a quick he doesn't mind if they have a hit great but he's sort of used to just supporting these people in what they want to do long term and the audience come back every year and you know it just keeps rolling along so it was a really great kind of fit to be with who, someone who's prepared to release records by the Bardo Pot, by Bardo Pot and the yes. one is probably a better producer for a film of the sort we wanted to make than someone who's looking for a hit, you know. But actually, of course, the irony is it has been a hit. It's been a demonstrable hit, and um, we the only it's sad. I mean, so lots of things are sad at the moment. One of the sad things is we've not been able to get together with the group and people that worked on it and buy them all a drink because it's succeeded beyond what anyone could have dreamt of, you know. I read something funny recently. I was reading about the film Performance, you know, the 
Nicholas Rogue Donald Camel yeah, film. Yeah. And they were shooting really quickly. So Warner Brothers were like, wow, this duo directing combo is going to be the future. Um, Donald works with the actors. Nicholas works on the production side with the cameras. And everything's getting done so quickly. And then obviously they saw the finished product and they were like, what the fuck is with all this <laughs> Alistair Crowley occult imagery and violence and yeah. sex and hallucinogenics? And they were like, yeah, this is not going to happen again. Yeah. Well, you know, this this would never have got made. And it's really sad. And it was, you know, it was turned, it was, um, it was very quickly turned down by a lot of people we approached. And that, that's with both me and Michael having BAFTAs and British Comedy Awards. You know, it doesn't count for anything. And, uh, um, I mean, it was rejected by one broadcast just on the base of it didn't really fit the algorithm that would suggest that anyone would watch it. And, of course, it wouldn't because the Nightingales don't show up on any algorithm generator. But at some point, you know, culture has to reach beyond its containing perimeter wall and find a new story. And um, that's how you get things like uh, the remake of... Um, the Kevin Spacey political drama that was on um, Netflix. It was a British thing, Andrew Davis thing, first of all, whose name I've forgotten. Um, House of Cards. House of Cards, yeah. I mean, Netflix, when it started to make its own drama, it did a survey. Who's your favourite actor? Kevin Spacey. What's your favourite uh, serious drama? House of Cards. Right, well, when we make House of Cards of Kevin Spacey, bang. It's just like a mathematical formula. But there was no question being asked by broadcasters or uh, content platforms for which the answer is a Nightingale's documentary fronted by Stuart Lee. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, not going to happen. We couldn't assume anyone was interested in Nightingale's. Well, I've looked at the comments online about it, which I enjoy, and one of them was, I don't like Stuart Lee and I hate this music, but I really enjoyed this film. <laughs> so I don't think you can hope for more than that, really. <laughs> you know. How do you do that to yourself? You have to just treat it as weird kind of market research and, you know, laugh at the bad ones. And uh, well, But, I mean, there's been some enjoyable things. There was um, someone was saying, you know, why had I done this and why had I put it on Sky? And, I, you know, they hoped that it helped me. I presumably was doing it because I wanted a new extension to my house. And the idea of the gulf between that and the fact we've learnt, earned literally nothing from it, <laughs> did it at our own expense. And also what how naive people to think, Who's thinking, I know, I'll make hundreds of thousands of pounds by making a documentary about unknown Birmingham group, the Nightingales. So, yeah. it's um, Yeah, that's the worst get rich plan. Yeah, the worst get rich. It's, it's been really great. And, and it, I mean, it came along, you know, it's been a miserable year for everyone. Obviously, as a champagne socialist, I escaped the worst of it. Although I haven't really been able to work for a year and it'll be a year before I do probably. But um, and no one's... No one's in my immediate family has died, you know, but, um, the, uh, you know, it's pretty relentless isn't it. And then I've very privileged to have this, this morale boost come that, you know, what's probably going to be the midpoint of this crisis. Uh, it was good to be occupied again, to have to engage your brain to talk about it and to, um, be able to see that it will have a future. And then that means you've got a future and there is a future and it sort of, was like a real blessing in the end weird it was never a chore but it's actually turned out to be a lifeline which wasn't didn't anticipate that 
And final question, what did Robert think of the film? Um, well, he, he likes it more and more as the days go by, from what I can tell. I think he found it pretty bruising to be talked about. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he trusted us, which was great to be trusted by someone. The You know, on, on paper, it's worked out really well for them. It's done what he wanted it to do, which is to raise their profile a bit. The ball's in his court now. If he gets to do a thousand-seater in London rather than a 150-seater, when the next tour off the back of this, it's really it'd be difficult for him to manage expectations of people. Hard to it's hard to um, deliver when you're suddenly thrust into a spotlight. It'd be interesting to see what they what they do with it all. Um, you know, so uh, we've done what we set out to do, which is to make an interesting film about the Nightingales, and I think he comes out of it really well. So, you know. It's um, it's pretty good. I'm think I think it's all right about it. I mean, uh, we've everyone did their best. That's all you can ask for. Yeah, yeah, 